Welcome to the Woodshop Live podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Sean Walker of Simple Cove, and today I'm joined by Hui Huen of the Alabama Woodworker. What's going on, Hui? Not bad, and it's just for today. Just for today. Just for today. <laughs> yeah, you go back to it tomorrow. And Guy Dunlap of Guy's Woodshop. Hey. How's it going? Good. Excellent. This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and to give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops, right or wrong. If you'd like to support the show, we're simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost to bring you this podcast. We want to welcome the new patron, Nathaniel Snyder. Thank you. Please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife if you'd like to show your support. Stay tuned to the end of the show to hear about what we've got going on in our shops. But with that, let's get right into it. Hui, what's your first question? This question is from Justin, and he asks, Hey guys, uh, it's Justin from with Liberty Craftsman. I really appreciate y'all's answering my previous question, and now I've got some more for you. When doing commission work, I tend to struggle with accurately picking a finish date, as the project inevitably gets de- delayed, generally on my end due to my full-time job. So I have to talk with the customer and let them know what's going on. I recently had a client ask for a refund due to me delaying delivery by about three weeks. We had some personal family stuff happen, and that caused a significant delay in the project. So long story short, do you think I should not give a date, but a range eight to 10 weeks and wait until a certain point in the project to communicate a more accurate completion date? So before we actually just answer the question, let's, I, I want to talk a little bit about something that he, that he said here, you know, he recently had to give a refund or I, I recently had a client ask for a refund due to delaying delivery. So a question of whether or not he actually did, uh, did give a refund or not, but my whole thought on this, and, I, and my wife and I just recently bought a couch from Bassett Furniture. And if you know anything about going to Bassett Furniture, you kind of cho- choose like your fabric and, you know, they make uh, they make the couch for you. It co- comes in like eight to 12 weeks is what they told us. They gave us a range. Once we paid and put down that deposit, there's no going back. We don't get that money back because it's custom. Yes, there's there's no going back. Um, Wheels are set in motion. Right. So that's what I'm thinking. Did you go ahead and buy materials? Did you go ahead and come up with a design? Have you already put, you know, wood to the joiner? You can't refund that material. You can't bring that material back. You're in it. And so I'm sort of thinking if you took a deposit, I wouldn't refund that deposit. That kind of is in a situation where you've got a custom piece that, that you're working on for a client, that client doesn't get that deposit back. At least that's my understanding of it. Let me play devil's advocate on, on that though, real, real quick, if you don't care. Sure, sure, please. Say I'm, you know, I'm the customer and I needed a, a table by an event that was happening. Yeah. And yep. you told me you can meet that deadline. Mm-hmm. And now I no longer need that or I had to go out and buy something else. And you're three weeks late. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally get that too. Um, so that's where I think maybe he kind of made a little bit of an error in giving a direct, an exact date as to when he could deliver, knowing that there was a great possibility that he might get delayed. And I think answering his second question, he, he kind of answered it, it would have been better to have given a range eight to 10 weeks. I think so, because you know things can happen. And my wife and I bought this couch from Bassett. That's exactly what they said. It'll, it'll be delivered between eight to 12 weeks. And I think that would have covered his bases a little bit better. But yeah, I get it. I mean, he's working a full-time job. Family stuff comes up sometimes. But I I have to agree with you, Sean. If that client, you know, you tell them, okay, I can get it done in a month. And it's three weeks late. And they expect that, you know, for Christmas dinner, Thanksgiving dinner, we're going to have a nice, beautiful, brand new table, whatever. Yeah. They have that expectation there. Um, yeah, you, you're right. You get, you know, he's, you said the key words there, full-time job that alone means this is a part-time thing. You got yep. a family on top of that. Yep. You've got to set expectations and you've got to build in that buffer. In my opinion, I don't sell furniture, but if I did, there's no way that I could personally give a concrete date of when I'm going to deliver something. There's no freaking way I could do that with a full-time job and only doing this you know, a couple, three hours here and there. 
you just got to give a, a range that you feel comfortable, even with the buffer built in of something coming up of a week, two weeks, three weeks. That's the only thing that you can do. And even then, when you get to a certain point, communicate a more accurate completion date. Even then, I wouldn't give an accurate concrete date of two weeks. I mean, even then I would give a smaller range, but I would still give a range in that, mm. in the communication. And that's, yeah. that's just my opinion with having a full-time job and doing this on the side. Now, Guy, with you actually running a furniture business at one point and now actually working for, for a company that has to meet deadlines, how did you do it back then? And how does the company do it now? This is a really tough question to answer. What you, what, what you really want to say is you want to treat every customer the same way. Mm-hmm. You want to make it fair for everybody. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you can't do that. Mm. You may have a customer that you know is going to be good for four or five pieces down the road. Right. Then you have a customer that you know that once you sell them this one piece, they're done. Yeah. You are also a custom builder with a face and a name. You are not a huge faceless company like Bassett Furniture. Right. It's very easy for Bassett Furniture to say to you, you know, hey, we'll build this for you, but you got you have to give us X amount of uh, percentage points down on the piece. Yep completely non-refundable and it's eight to 12 weeks. And even then, if we don't hit that, you're still on the hook. Yeah. Too bad. Right. Right. Yeah. No, too bad. Right. Right. And they can get away with that because you have really no recourse. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can send them an email and that's about it. Yeah. Um, But when you're doing custom stuff as a, you know, a side gig, you know, you're more involved with the customer. I mean, you you look these customers in the eyeballs and you told them it would be this. So I guess my 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 the point of what I'm trying to say is you're in that situation. Make sure that you over prom or over prom under, under promise, promise over deliver. deliver. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if if you think it's mm-hmm. gonna take you three, four weeks barring some kind of catastrophe at home, mm-hmm. tell them six to eight yeah, and then get it done ahead of time. Right. But give yourself extra time mm-hmm. and always, 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 you know, like we, you're building a house right now. Yeah. So with a construction loan, you have to pay a third, 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 probably. Correct. Yeah. Well, th- thankfully this is a very well-established builder. So we are not on a construction loan. Okay. But, Anyways. but, but, but I know exactly what you, what you're meaning. Cause with we a, were looking with, at other with, builders. Yeah. Yeah. They, 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 they request a third, third, third. Correct. So it's the same way with furniture. You know, you got to get the money up front just to cover your costs for materials. Cause as soon as you get that job, you're going to order the materials. So now I've got, you know, 150, 200 board feet of cherry in my right. shop. I've ordered hardware. I've ordered this, I've ordered that. I've, I've out of my own pocket, I've shelled out a thousand dollars. Let's say yep. you got to cover your costs. Mm-hmm. So if the customer says, well, you know, you didn't hit the date. Okay. Sorry. But I'm keeping the deposit because I bought material. Right. You have to spell that out in your contract, your contract, whatever. Yeah. 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 But even then, let's say it's that customer that you know that, yeah, and this is your fault that you screwed up. Yeah. But you know that customer because he's a, a friend of somebody you know at church or whatever. <clears throat> it's somebody you know that is going to buy more furniture from you at some point in time. So do you completely alienate them forever or do you take the hit this time, keep the materials knowing full well that you're probably going to use those materials for something else anyways. Yeah. Very good point. You don't want to, you you don't want to burn, right? Yeah. You don't want to burn your bridges and you have to temper all your decisions about the with, with what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. So it's, it's, it, it, there, there is no cut and dried answer to this question, I think. Yeah. You have to, each situation is its own unique entity and you have to deal with it at, within its own uniqueness. Yeah. Good point. 
Well, Justin, I hope that helps in some way. I, I think we kind of skirted around it, but also hit on some points. Hopefully you get it figured out and sorry for the delays, man. But, uh, but yeah, it's, I, I do have a question. Sure. I used a word before uniqueness. Is that a word? I don't know. It sounded right. <laughs> I imagine it is. Right. Usually when I say stupid stuff like that, millennials whip out their phones and oh, start great. You know, fact-checking yeah. me. Well, let's not do that. You know, you know a guy that isn't a word. <laughs> With Both that, you guys are millennials, so I figured you would have your phones. Oh, gosh. All right. We're, we're, fact-checking b- Both life. Sean and I are borderline <laughs> millennials, okay? Let's not. Let's not How old are you, Hui? I'm 37. I think I'm older than you, aren't I? No, I'm 37. When were you born? What month? November. Ah, uh, June. What's the cutoff point to be a millennial? Who knows? Thirty-seven. Is it? What's the definition of a millennial, anyways? Um, um, the definition is, I think, born after before. I don't know. I don't even. <laughs> only only you old people pay attention to that stuff. <laughs> How did we digress into this? <laughs> old people, old people. Yeah, wow. we've really gone off the tracks. Who's got the next question? You do. You do. Go. I do. Go. All right. This is from Jeff Richards. And it says, good day, guys. He must be Australian, I'm assuming. I have a couple questions. The first being for a bit of fun. Sometime back, we made a modern shaker cabinet. In 20 or so years from now, will that be an antique modern shaker cabinet? That's a good question. Anyways, my second question relates to resawing. We're doing two? Well, the first question was kind of a joke. Yeah. Oh, okay. We're not answering that. I was hoping to answer that. Yeah, we're not going to answer that. <laughs> so he's asking about resawing. I can't. We we uh, we get we get this question a lot, and, I, and we address it a lot. But I, I thought we'd go over it again because not everybody goes back and listens to our catalog. Anyways, I can't restraw. I can't resaw very straight, even using a fence. I have watched plenty of YouTube videos and I've seen different jigs from different manufacturers, including the mag switch fence that lets you pivot the workpiece. So to resaw, should you be able to set up a fence and run the piece through getting a straight cut as we would do with a table saw or is that a constant or is constant adjustment required? Jeff. So Jeff in woodworking, there are, 10 different ways. Let me rephrase that. There's a hundred different ways to do thing, do something. And they're all correct. Yeah. I'm just going to tell you my way to do it. The first thing I do is I make sure my bandsaw is set up properly for resaw. And that has to do with my bearings where the bearings are in relationship to the blade, where my thrust bearing is in relationship to the blade and how all that stuff is working together. Your thrust bearing should be right behind the gullets of the of the saw blade. They should be next to the saw blade, very, very close. So you can spin the blade, but they don't touch, but they should be very close to that. And your thrust bearing behind the blade should be about the same thing. It should be really close to touching it, but not touching it. And that's the same above and below. The biggest thing is the tension on the blade. And it's a very subjective thing. Uh, I test the tension on my blade, not at the blade by the, the table, but on the other side of it between the two wheels, typically, you know, to the left of the blade, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking for a quarter inch deflection or less when I push it. And I mean, I don't want to push it real hard. And, you know, there's the subjectivity comes in. If you're a, you know, a, a, a weightlifting stud like we, <laughs> it's really easy to push it over. But if you're an old fart like me, it's really hard to push it over. So it, it, it's kind of a, you just, something you have to get used to. But proper bandsaw setup is more important than anything else. As far as, Doing the fence goes. I use a fence. Sean, what do you do? Have you ever have you used a fence or do you use uh, the pivot method? 100% the fence. Only the fence. Yep. Do you have anything to add about the, the band cross setup? No, I do the same exact thing you do. I try to center the gullet, like you said, between the bearings and on the center of the tire. So I don't that, do that. 
so that I, okay, you asked how I did it. I'm just letting you know uh-huh. so that I can replace the blade and not have to worry about moving the guides too much. Yeah. So that's kind of the theory behind that. Now I've only ever used, I typically only use one blade. I don't, I hardly ever switch out blades and then I also put the the side, well, now the ceramic guides right behind the gullet like you do and make them to where I can fit, you know, a sheet of paper between them before it touches the blade. Um, and then I get the back. Well, now we'll just call it the bearing, but whatever the ceramic on my bandsaw to where I, it doesn't touch when I spin the wheel by hand. But if I put any force on the blade, it will hit the ceramic guide on the back. Yeah. yeah. If your, your bandsaw is dialed in, you move your fence where you want it and cut. And that's all the way up to, you know, a 12 inch wide piece. You should be able to dial it in. If not, then you you really need to, to tune your bandsaw. But that's, that's my method. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I, I, I don't do the gullets in the center of the, of the tires. I do the blade in the center of the tires. Yeah. And I guess I should preface that by saying if I'm using a narrow enough blade, if I'm using a wide blade, like three quarter, I don't think that's going to be possible. Yeah. But if I'm using like a... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Sean. No, that's fine. Go ahead. I was going to say another big thing is the blade you're using. If you're using the wrong blade, that'll cause a lot of problems. What what kind of blade do you use, Wee? I use a three eighths or a half inch. I can't remember. I think it's three eighths, three eighths, three TPI. Same setup as both of you guys um i think for similar to sean i just i center the the uh, gullet on the wheel just so that it's easier to swap out but again just like sean i really don't swap out my blades that much but i use a fence i I like using a fence and uh it keeps it simple and i think ultimately it's just like you said guy if if the bandsaw is set up properly then don't think you kind of need any of the other sort of uh accessories to you know, pivot along, you know, an axis or something to uh, adjust as you're resawing. I have seen some some folks straight up just freehand resawing. Have you guys seen mm-hmm. that? Um, yeah. Uh, I'm not that good. <laughs> I use a fence and I use a, a feather board. I mean, if whatever. I was ripping a board in half and I didn't really care and I was going to join it and play it anyways, I would maybe. But if my bandsaw is set up, I'm setting the fence to whatever I need and just ripping it. Yeah. yeah. Most of the time when I'm resawing, I'm, I'm not... I'd say probably less than 50% of the time on a resawing. I'm not resawing just a board in half. I'm cutting veneer. Mm. So I'm, you know, a heavy 16th of an inch. Let's say three thirty seconds of an inch. I can't freehand that. Yeah. No. I'm using, no. I'm using, I'm using a feather board and I'm using the fence and I'm pushing up against there. You know, I, a long time ago, I used to check for drift and adjust for that. I don't do any of that stuff anymore. I never check for drift. Yeah, I have it, a, a half inch, three TPI carbide tooth blade, and I rarely change it. Yeah, you know that's me. I like using a fence, <clears throat> especially for veneer. If I'm cutting chops on veneer, I definitely like using a fence. Yeah. Um, but honestly, even if I'm ripping a port in half, I'm not <laughs> using a fence because <laughs> it's there and it's you know it's all set up so. I just use it. Yeah, it's easy to set up like a table saw. And right. I said, my, my, my bandsaw has a T-style fence, just like a table saw does. Mm-hmm. And I've got the, it's got a, a, a hairline, you know, window with a scale on it. Yeah. And my, it's set up. So if I want to cut a half inch, I can just move it over to a half inch and I can slice a half inch off a board. Yeah. And I know it's going to be pretty accurate. Is it octagonal? Whatever, guys. <laughs> we had a discussion before before this. What what uh, shape Beesmeyer fences are? Anyway, all right, moving on. Moving all right, on. I think I got the next one. This is from Justin. Hey guys, that's how I started it. Uh, listening to the episode fifty eight right now, and I had a question for a small shop. What finishes would you keep on hand, ready to go? Stain, shellac, poly. Also, what other finished supplies do you keep on hand as well? Thanks, Justin. Well, Justin, this is a good question, and and I often wonder the same thing, so I'm glad I get to hear uh, the, the other two fellows what they keep. But for me, I keep two flavors of flakes on hand. I keep Garnet and Super Blonde. Um, I keep those in a mason jar in a, a, a dark, cool cabinet, and I normally mix, I think it's eight ounces of each, um, at a one and one and a half pound cut. 
uh, and keep those on hand at all time. But I have enough to mix several jars of that at all time, again, in a dark, cool place in a sealed container. I will keep armor seal on hand because that's my favorite wiping varnish. And I will keep those in a stop loss bag. Those are those little bags mm, that they're awesome. Yeah, they are. They, they keep the air out um, and they do a great job. They're kind of a pain in the butt to stack. But again, it's saving me money because one of the biggest issues I've found with armor seal, at least in my shop, I can't keep a can of that stuff longer than about, I don't know, two months before it starts to turn really dark brown and just go bad. So I found the really? stop loss bags. Yeah, I have bad luck with armor seal. Hmm. And the stop loss bags have made that a whole lot better. If I do have a water-based poly, I will keep high performance. Again, I'm going to stick those in the stop loss bags. Let's see. What else do I keep on hand? Shellac, wipe on poly, oil, and then the um, water-based poly. Stains, I do. I keep trans temp, so I, you know that, that'll last forever. And powder. Um, I will keep, uh, well, stains and dyes. Um, I don't, I don't do a whole lot of that. So it's just trans tint and a couple of powders. Um, I don't keep any paint. I do have milk paint, but that's in powder form. Mm. And then I just got your waxes, uh, paste waxes with, um, you know, four out steel wool, disposable gloves, you know, your cotton rags to wipe it on with I'm trying to think if there's anything else, uh, your mineral spirits, denatured alcohol, yeah. you know, stuff to thin these items. I don't keep any lacquer. I don't keep any conversion varnishes or anything like that. I'm not that advanced. Uh, just the ones that I mentioned are pretty much all that I keep on hand and uh, funnels, plastic funnels, you know, pouring the stuff. That's all that I have. I'm you know, pretty basic. I have a lot of crap in my finishing cabinets just because it's stuff that I've collected over the years. Leftovers. But it's not... Oh yeah, but it's yeah. not something that I would mention as something I keep on hand. It's just mm-hmm. I happen to have on hand because I bought it seven years ago, and I'm just never used all of it, and I need to throw it away or get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, just throw yeah. it away. I hate that stuff. But that, I mean, that's that's all that I have. I wanted to ask this question to you guys because I want to hear what you guys keep on hand. So I want to pass this off to uh, Hui because I don't think I've ever seen your finishing cabinet or whatever. I've seen guys. What do you keep? Man, I've just have a collection of a lot of stuff that of different things that I've used over the years. I have tried not to keep too much on hand because it if you don't use it fast enough, man, it goes bad, especially polyurethane. Uh, I do have I always have uh, linseed oil. I always have shellac flakes because you can keep that for a really, really long time. If I need poly, if I need water based poly just for like shop cabinets or whatever, I just go to the big box store and buy a quart of it. I never go through that much of it where I need to have, you know, a gallon on hand at any given point. I just I just tend spend the 10, 12, 13 dollars and get a quart of it when I need it. Uh, uh, you I wish it was that cheap. Is it not? So it's like 20 bucks a quart. I don't know. Midwax or armor seal? What's that? Both. It, thankfully, I can actually get Armor Seal here, here locally, so I never have to keep it on hand. It's one of the, I guess, antique store, not what is it, uh, reclaim stores or whatever here, uh, consignment shops or whatever that sells Armor Seal and general finishes stuff. So any, honestly, any of that stuff I can I can get pretty quick. Um, and and shipping's not that bad. Two day shipping on a lot of things. So I just don't keep that much other than shellac. You know, your your thinners and mineral spirits and whatnot i keep it's about it you know i try not to i I mean i have a lot like you sean i have a large collection of stuff that has accumulated over the years how about you guy you got i'm sure you have a large collection of stuff that you've accumulated over the years a large collection of stuff that i need to throw out yeah so i I typically i use a lot of shellac Mm -hmm. so i i usually keep amber blonde excuse me, blonde and garnet shellac flakes on hand. And I may have some of that mixed up. I may not, but you know, I keep it in a, in a dark cabinet like Sean does. Mm -hmm. I've got a lot of stuff in there and a lot of, you know, it's just stuff I didn't use up that I probably should throw away. Typically if I'm doing a project where I know I'm going to put on, let's say three, four coats of, of armor seal 
and it's a it's a large project. I'm just going to go out and buy a new can, regardless of what I have in the shop. I don't even look. I just go out and buy a can of it. It goes a long way, and I'm probably wasting my money. But it's a fresh I do can. Have, I do I do have some in stop loss bags, mm-hmm. which are really nice. What I have in stop loss bags, I've got a, a stop loss bags. I've got some. I do have armor seal in, in some of them. I've got like four or five of them in there. But I also have several different flavors of um, water locks, oh. which is really expensive stuff. Yeah, it um, is. Yeah, but I, I like it. You know, As do I'm, I. I'm doing, if I'm doing cherry, I like putting garnet shellac and then putting water locks on, over it. And you get a nice, nice uh, deep red tone to it. Hmm. Brownish brown tone uh, or brownish red tone, I should say. Anyways, I digress. Um, that's pretty much it. I mean, I use I use a lot of shellac. I use a lot of armor seal type things, which is just a wiping poly. And all wiping poly is is polyurethane and uh, solvent like mineral spirits and a little bit of oil put in there. Mm. Uh, actually, no, they don't put oil in there. That's Danish oil. If you took wiping poly and put boiled linseed oil in it, then you get Danish oil. Mm. So that's what I use most of the time. I mix my own. I'll go buy a can of, you know, full strength polyurethane and I'll, I'll mix it third, third, third with naphtha and which is a, a solvent like mineral spirits and the, um, linseed oil. Linseed oil. Yeah. 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 And that works really well for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you ever put tongue oil in there? No. I've never used tongue oil. Never saw the need to. I don't know what the difference is. I don't know oh. what benefit it would give me. I thought that's what um, water locks had, and it was tongue oil. Yeah, but there's all there, there's there's proprietary uh, uh, solids in there, and mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. There's other stuff they put in there. There's something that uh, I'm, I'm probably saying this wrong, and I'm probably misinformed. But they, they I remember reading something about how they. they put something in there for the polymerization of the, of the product, which is, you know, I don't know what the hell that means. I'm not a scientist. Hui, what does that mean? You're a scientist. <laughs> Polymers, how they link together with the solids when it dries. I Thank you. Known. Thank you for, for that, for that uh, answer. Hui. I, I, I was making a joke. I didn't think you actually knew. I don't really know. That was, that's just a guess. Oh, from so <laughs> you're, you're full of BS. Then. I'm full of it. <laughs> I don't. Wow. I think that's Great. what it is. I think that's what the I mean, yeah, that, that makes sense. Close though. enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, I think we, with an we, all, like we all basically care have the same thing that we you know we we can have shellac and we have leftovers and stuff we've used. Yeah, but shellac. I mean, I just just because shellac flakes just really don't go bad. I just keep them on hand, so it. I don't mind having extra of it in my shop. Yeah, and I use I it. Agree. So, you know. Yep. Yeah, and a little goes a long way when mixing that stuff, unless you're doing a gallon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do have a couple unopened quarts of conversion varnish and water-based lacquer that I haven't used yet. Mm. Because when I order, I usually buy extra yep. because of shipping, and I want to have it. And I, you, I can't order it like, like right now, I'm done. I can't order it anymore. Because it's too cold out, I don't want it to freeze. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, you don't live up here north like 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 I do. We so you got to think about stuff like that. You can't have it freeze. Yeah. So I'll always have a couple three cans of it in in inventory. Yeah. So if I need it during the winter time, I've got it. All right. Hopefully that helps, Justin. We're gonna take this back to Hui. What's your next question? All right. This is from Jacob from North Carolina. Do y'all have any experience or thoughts on replacing a machine's V-belt with an adjustable link drive belt? I've recently purchased a used 17-inch drill press that has ha- has more vibration than I'd prefer. The pulleys appear to be aligned, so the next thing I would try to be replacing is the V-belts. Are link belts worth it, or are they just a gimmick? So this is a really good question because I had, and I think all of us have had some old machinery in the past. I had an old Delta table saw, a contractor table saw with an outboard motor. And the belt that was on it was all crumbly and in a bad situation. So I had to replace the belt. And rather than using a V-belt, I got one of those adjustable belts. 
And these adjustable, excuse me, adjustable link belts. These adjustable link belts are tied together with um, a tab that's kind of shaped in the shape of a V-belt. And that tab slips into the next link and they lock together. They're supposed to reduce the vibration in these type of outboard motor tools or whatnot. I would say that before you go and get a replacement belt or a V-belt, or excuse me, a link belt, because the link belts are a little more expensive than your traditional V-belt, is see how the bearings are on your drill press. See if whether or not you've got you know a significant amount of run out on your... Um, Quill. Excuse me? On the quill, the chuck. Yeah. Yes, quill. Thank you. I, I was trying to look for the word. And check everything before you go ahead and invest in a link belt, because I don't know if... If you're using, especially if you're using the drill press quite often, I don't know if you're really going to see much of a benefit unless really the belt is sort of the cause of the issue. If everything's sort of aligned up, you know, you, you've got great bearings, everything sounds great, and it doesn't really seem to be vibrating that much without the belt attached, then maybe go the route of getting one of these adjustable link belts. That would be my take on it. I have used them. Um, I wouldn't say that they're a gimmick. But I would probably isolate the problem knowing that it is the belt versus maybe you get the belt and you're still dealing with the vibrations within the drill press. Have you guys ever used any of these link belts? Um, nope. Nope. Okay. Nope. I've, I've only replaced my broken belts with the same exact belt mm -hmm. and never investigated anything else. So I'm yeah. not much help on this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I, I think. Here's my, I, I'm probably wrong. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> but here's here's my take on the on the the link belts. I think they're just an easy out for people that are too lazy to go and buy the right size belt they need. Yeah, and the and I'm probably gonna take some heat from that for that. But I, I think that's a lot of what it is. It's just an easy out for people. And you can go to like a Woodcraft or Rockler and get it right away. Well, yep. the thing that people probably don't know is that you can take your, you can go to an auto parts store and they'll make you a V-belt of any length you damn well need. Yeah. So as long as you know what the length is, they can make one for you pretty easy. Typically, if it's not bearings, <clears throat> like we mentioned before, <clears throat> the uh, vibration that's caused is usually from a worn belt. Mm-hmm. Because it's stretched out a little bit, mm -hmm. and putting a V belt on there probably will reduce the vibration if you get the tension right. Mm -hmm. Yep. But it's not because the the link belt is this magic thing. It's just an easy way to go get a piece and put it on there, right. and you don't have to you know go talk to the wonderful people at the auto parts store. Yeah, or just buy it online. Amazon has all kinds of V belts. You'd be amazed what Amazon has. Oh yeah. Now all so, the all the machines that I have now have your traditional V belt on them, and yeah. if I were to replace them, I would probably just get the belt, the yep. the right size belt for that machine, and I have no vibration issues at all. Well, I, I honestly don't see how a link belt will solve any vibration issues yeah i i, I looked into it i have I to see some kind of proof of that yeah yeah uh, i can't either i've never had an issue and tried a, a link belt and i must add to it yeah. yeah check those things first on the drill press and then you know if you feel inclined to get a link belt i don't see anything wrong with it but nope you know i would probably just get the v-belt the correct size that came with the machine so you know, if it if it is a worn belt, then a traditional V belt is going to solve that problem as well. All right, I think are we back to Guy now? We are. All right, we are. Okay. So this question is from Mike, and it says, "My question is: I am making a bed, and I am contemplating the best way to attach the bed rails." I like the bed rail hangers slash brackets because mortising and screwing them in should be simple. However, I want the bed to be tight and not squeak when the missus and I get busy. Hey, Mike, this is a family, this is a family podcast. <laughs> I didn't see that in there before. Slipped it in. Anyways, 
My other thought is to use bed bolts because I am thinking the bed will be much tighter, but lining up the bed bolt into the rail seems difficult because my bed rails will be five quarters thick. Do any of you have experience making beds and what method of attaching the rails did you use? Thanks for the advice and keep up the good work, Mike. Mike, I have made several beds and I have used both bed bolts and I have used the hangers. And you're absolutely right. The hangers are much easier to install, but they are not as tight as bed bolts are. The bed bolts are much more difficult to install, but you can tighten them down quite a bit. And if people are getting busy playing Parcheesi on the bed, <laughs> there's less chance of it squeaking. So if I were, if I were to make, if somebody came to me right now and said, guy, will you make me a bed? I would more than likely use bed bolts and I would make a jig to drill the holes mm -hmm. because drilling the, the hole is not necessarily in the post, but drilling the hole, if, if, if people are familiar with bed bolts are, you've got like this long rail, you've got this, you know, six and a half, you know, a, a seven foot, eight foot long rail. Mm -hmm. And you got to drill a hole into it, into the end grain of it. That's going to go in four or five inches. Then you're going to drill another hole in the side to put a bolt through mm -hmm. or the nut in. Then the bolt has to go through that. And it's all got to line, magically line up and fit together. Yep. It's not an easy thing. Um, and one of the reasons I would use it, I'm going to pitch something that is not a sponsored product at all, but I, 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 they, they sent me one to do a video for them, which is Woodpeckers makes a bed bolt jig. That's not, you know, $500. It's, I think it's under a hundred dollars. And they also sell the hardware to do it. And it works really well. I forget what they call it. But it's it's for bed bolts. Or, you know, you could use it for, uh, you know, bench bolts or whatever. Mm -hmm. But bed bolts are the way to go. It's a much tighter, stiffer structure. But it is more, it is more difficult. Have you guys, have you ever built a, a bed, Sean? Negative. I have not. I just, I don't have the room. All right, moving on. Hui, and I believe that's. Are you, I'm sorry. To, before we go to Hui, <laughs> is that the Woodpecker's Universal Cross Dowel Jig? Yes. Yeah. It is. Okay. Yeah, that is uh, 109 for the basic kit. It's not sponsored. Okay. They don't know anything about this podcast. It's nope. just a a good tool recommendation from Guy. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is a good tool, and they sell the 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 bolts there too. Yeah. So you can get everything in one stop shopping. I was able to help a little bit. We'll, se we'll yeah. send him a bill. Um, no, I have not made a bed, so I have nothing to add. <laughs> I would probably either make a jig or use something like that um, because, like you said, I imagine it's got to be perfect. Yeah, it's got to it's got to be right on. Yeah. I mean, it's not something you can just eyeball and drill a six inch hole through, you know, four quarter material with a five sixteenth inch bit and get it all the way directly in the center. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, if you don't get, if you don't have a jig, use the, uh, the, 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 the hangers and the brackets, which are very easy to install. And I, I, they're not bad. It's not like they're junk. They are good. Mm -hmm. They're just not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to tighten them and, and get as uh, tight of a fit as you will with bed bolts. But if you were to make commission to make a bed or ask to make a bed tomorrow, you'd go with bed bolts. I'd go with bed bolts because I have that jig. Okay. Oh, well. If I yeah. didn't have that jig, I'd probably use the hangers. Okay. 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 Or you would work that money into the price yeah. of the bed. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And plus, point, Sean. And plus, you could use this jig for other things, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. Use perhaps. it as a traditional doweling jig, perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> Are you reading the text off of the website for the No, jig? I closed oh, okay. I closed that tab after okay. I just wanted to see the price because like all their other products, I figured it was like seven ninety nine ninety nine or something, but it's actually one oh nine. It's not terrible. For the no, basic jig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's gonna save you at making your own jig. And I don't know the last time that I you know, our shop time was free and our supplies are free. So one oh nine's you know, they figured out all the engineering and it's probably made out of aluminum and yeah, it's a it's a big beefy thing and it works very well. 
Hmm. And if you go to their website, there's a video I did of actually using it. So no. put in coupon code guy and save nothing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All That's right. Good. Who's got the next one? It's I believe you, I Sean. do, right? Yeah. This is the last one, one too. Mm-hmm. All right. This is a pretty good one. The other ones were good as well, but this is also, this is from Nathan. Hey guys, love the podcast. This is exactly what everyday woodworkers want to listen to in a podcast. My question is, I just started woodworking six months ago and I turned my two-car garage into a full-fledged wood shop. Acquired all the big milling machines and just about everything you can think of. As of now, I only follow detailed plans from other designs. I can follow plans to a T, but actually making my own designs and plans seems somewhat daunting. I have SketchUp and have been trying to learn. For whatever reason, though, it's just not coming easy. Do you think because I can't design my own pieces that I should find another hobby? Or do these things take time to eventually learn? I've only been woodworking for six months. I've mainly done casework, a few cabinets, and built in for my wife's closet. Nathan. Well, uh, this is a great question because, I mean, I, like you, was uh, gung-ho when I first started and you know, after a few months said, okay, I'm going to design my own piece. And there's a lot that goes into designing your own piece outside of trying to figure out the joinery, the size of the joinery, the location of the joinery, proportions that look good. Um, just the overall design, what species, wood movement. And if you're, if you've only been woodworking for six months and this is probably, you know, a part-time nights and weekends thing, it's very difficult. And, you know, oftentimes I would get frustrated because, you know, unless you've got a, a library um, with books for references or, or know or have the knowledge, it's, it's, it's confusing. You don't know what to go by. You don't know the proper way to do things. Um, the, what's the thickness of the tenon? What should the length of it be? Where should I place it? I mean, these, these things add up and just overall add a lot of frustration. And then on top of it, you're trying to learn SketchUp at the same time. And I just think that as a, a brand new woodworker, this is a recipe for burnout. And, you know, sh- and you ask the question, do you think because I can't design my own piece, I should find another hobby? Absolutely not. I mean, there is nothing wrong with not designing your own pieces and building off of plans. I mean, somebody else has done the hard work of figuring out the design, building the plans and, uh, you know, the joinery, everything. They've done that for you. Not only when you draw a piece in SketchUp, now you've got to make a cut list. Then you've got to figure out the plan of execution on this. And if you've only been in woodworking for six months, you've still, you're still learning the fundamentals of woodworking and you can't get bogged down with all of the, the stuff that goes into building uh, or designing a piece. In my opinion, you know, wait until you've got all the fundamentals down, fundamentals down, and you're, you're very comfortable with that. And then slowly learn one thing at a time. Just draw your piece on a piece of paper to get a sketch. Don't try to learn SketchUp and designing furniture at the same time. I think that's just a bit much. Just start with drawing it, build a basic table, write down the dimensions, write down the joinery, and then build that piece out of some pine or something like that that's real cheap that you can you know, not worry about. See what the proportions look like. You know, Get version two of that and then three of that, and then learn your next piece and then pull in some sketch up, but you've got plenty of time. This is a hobby that hopefully like guy and we and myself are going to have for the rest of our lives. There's no need to rush in and try to be your own designer when you've only been doing it for six months. You've got plenty of time to learn. Um, no, you don't need to learn another hobby. Just take it slow, learn one step at a time, learn the fundamentals of joinery and then of designing pieces. And then finally learn something like sketch up and just got to take it slow and just keep at it. You've only been in there six months. You got many, many years to figure this stuff out. And as long as you're enjoying the hobby, that's the important part. That's my two cents on the matter. Guy, what what are your thoughts on Nathan and his path? I think that what you just said there was very good, solid advice, Sean. One of the things that's very difficult for new woodworkers is design as, as, as we've been talking about this. So getting the basics down of construction, I think are more important at the beginning. Learn how to do dados correctly and rabbits correctly and mortises correctly. Learn how to do the joinery. Mm -hmm. 
Learn how everything fits together. Learn the basics. And the only way you're going to be able to do that without getting frustrated and blowing your brains out is to use plans that are already figured out for you. Mm -hmm. You know, just because somebody says make a tenon this big doesn't mean it's an easy thing to do. It still takes a lot of skill to get that tenon to fit right into that mortise and to get the mortise the right size and get it the right offset from the face of whatever you're doing. I mean, there's still a lot of skills that have to be developed before you start worrying about design. Design is a fairly lofty thing. I just started after, you know, 40 years, I just started really doing a lot of my own design work maybe five or six years ago, you know, other than just, you know, simple cabinetry, which is pretty basic stuff. But like actual furniture pieces, man, it's it's difficult to get right. Get all the dimensions right and thicknesses right, and it's 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 tough. Yeah. So my my recommendation is really to just concentrate on the basics. Concentrate on the basics of making, getting the joinery down, getting your materials down, getting your milling down, getting all the fundamentals down first. And once you get the fundamentals down then that'll tie in more into the design stuff. It's real easy to design something. It's another thing to actually make it. Mm-hmm. Hui, what are your thoughts? I really can't add more than what you guys had already said. All right, um, let's move on. <laughs> We're going to close out the show now. Uh, I mean, but the guy's only been woodworking for six months. Ah, oh, gosh, he's got a lot to learn, man. Oh, you don't know. He well, may be more advanced than you. Well, very much so. I'm sure he is probably. I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't even even come close to suggesting that uh, he go and find another hobby, <laughs> just because after six months of doing it, he you know his daunting task of designing and using SketchUp. That's pretty common. I mean, uh, still sorry, my daughter in the background is yelling and screaming and playing. Um, but anyway, uh, no, I, I have nothing to add. I think you guys really kind of hit the nail on the head, learning the basics and understanding why uh, why things go together the way they go together and the reasons behind, you know, certain joinery. So I think you guys, uh, I think you guys answered the question pretty well. Yeah. And I think the fact that Nathan is asking this means he's really into woodworking. And I don't think you yeah. can just give it up <laughs> if you're this, you're already investing six months of your time learning the fundamentals. No, you just got to slow down and take a step back. You know, one thing that I did when I started is I started with plans and then I took an existing plan and tweaked it and modified it and said, okay, this looks good, but it needs to be bigger. Okay. I don't like this part of it, but if I do that with it, it'll look better in my opinion. Take existing plans from wherever you get the plans from and modify them a little bit. Yep. You know, um, one thing that I, the second, well, probably the fourth project was, it was a credenza, but it was, it wasn't, it wasn't long enough. So I took it, added a spot in the center, just stretched it out and said the top, the middle and the bottom boards needed to be adjusted accordingly, add two more vertical dividers and everything else is the same. So just take an existing project, mm-hmm. tweak it, and then it becomes your own. And then you just slowly work off of that until you start learning SketchUp or drawing it. And uh, a lot of people just go from sketching on on you know pencil and paper. You don't have to learn SketchUp. Is yeah. it nice? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I go straight to SketchUp on anything I need to draw, but you don't have to learn it at the beginning. You know, yeah. you can't learn SketchUp and designing your own woodworking plans at the same time. It's a bit too much. Yeah, and another really good resource is you know the you've got several magazines that have archives online. Wood Magazine, Pop Woodworking, and and Fine Woodworking. Mm-hmm. All three of them have a membership that you can purchase that gets you their full back catalog of every article they've ever published. Yep, and there are all kinds of plans, tips, techniques. Yeah, yeah, tips and techniques. But mo- if you're looking for plans. Don't don't buy Ted's plans. No, <laughs> yeah, don't um, do that. <laughs> join Fine Woodworking or Pop Woodworking or Wood Magazine and and get access to all their stuff. Um, if you're a beginner woodworker, I might recommend Wood Magazine because they have some stuff. Wood Magazine is kind of weird. They have everything from you know silly stuff for making toys to fairly complex stuff 
furniture wise. So they have a really wide range of stuff. Fine woodworking is mostly higher end stuff and pop woodworking as well. Pop woodworking. So I, I, the reason I'm saying pop woodworking, because I have never even opened an issue of pop woodworking before. So I don't even know what's between the covers. Um, <laughs> That's rare to recommend them then. Yeah, but I'm just, I know, I know they have a, a large archive online and you can have a membership there and get access to everything they have. So that, that would be a, that would be a recommendation to look at that kind of stuff too. Yeah. And one thing that I noticed in dealing with Popwood's uh, plans, I did a, a build series on one of their cabinets. You're going to find different magazines going to, some of them go into greater detail than others. So you may want to find the one that goes into the detail that, that you like, because I found the Popwood to not go into much detail. So take that for what it's worth. It may have just been that one plan, but yeah. you may, uh, you well, know, they're probably f- like fine woodworking. They're assuming that, you know, you're a little bit higher level woodworker. Perhaps. And not a beginner. Cause I know fine woodworking doesn't cater to the, the beginner woodwork. Yeah. I don't know. Some of their older stuff, I, I think in my opinion, fine woodworking is, is better publication than pop wood. It's my opinion. I'm a member of the fine woodworking website and it's very, July. very valuable. Yeah. Very. Oh yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I also have access to the wood magazine stuff because I've worked with them on a couple of different things. And they, they gave me access to their 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 back catalog. And they got a lot of good stuff in there. Do they have videos library. on their site too? Yeah. They have videos on their site too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of really cool, simple jigs mm-hmm. that are bread and butter type jigs that you should have in your shop that aren't like really super complicated to make. So oh. all right. Okay, Nathan, I hope that helps, um, you know, hang in there and, and keep going. Uh, but that's our last question. Let's talk about what we have going on in the shop today or the last two weeks, I guess, since our last episode anyway. Uh, Guy, why don't you go ahead and kick that off and then pass it to Hui. Okay, well, um, right now in my shop, I'm preparing for a new delivery of a tool that I have to make room for. So I sold my CNC machine because I'm getting a new one. That went this weekend. I, I've decided I'm going to sell my lathe. I'm right there I, with you. I use it maybe once every year if I'm lucky. So I'm just going to get rid of it because I want to put it. I want to put the CNC where my lathe is right now. If I move my lathe, I have nowhere to put it because it's so long. It's a 40-inch lathe. So I'm going to get rid of that. At work, I've got a kind of an interesting project going on. It's a, a live edge waterfall table, which, you know, I really love live edge stuff. <laughs> um, but it's kind of cool because this live edge has a big burl in the front of it. You'd have to see it. Mm-hmm. it, it and it's got this big bump out of it. So I'm actually building a case that's going underneath it. It's a credenza where it's a, a complete bowed front on it. Mm-hmm. and um, so far, everything's going together fairly well, and I'm working on that right now. And that's that's the only thing they have me working on, because it's a, a project for a, a very rich guy that they want to woo, so to speak. So that's all I got going on. Hui, well, before before I I go ahead and talk about what I have going in the shop. So if you're getting rid of the lathe, if you have to turn something, are you just gonna go to a friend shop or something like that or i'll just build something that doesn't require turnings okay there you go there you go because <laughs> i think you know if, if, if push comes to shove if i have to do something i can always buy another lathe but i'll probably get a a, a midi lathe yeah my lathe is too big it's yeah. a full size 40 inch between centers lathe yeah. yeah it's you know six feet long it's got a big footprint i bought it 20 some years ago, maybe 25 years ago. And it's just big. Yeah. And I don't need it. I don't use it. Does your new CNC have the, the ability to turn? If I buy a fifth axis for it mm-hmm. or a fourth axis, depends on how I want to look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, there you go. You may investigate that. I may investigate that too. So mm-hmm. we'll see. So in my shop, I just finished the telephone bench that uh, I've been working on since May. It's finally done. Glued that up, put the finish on it, and I also upholstered the cushion. So really happy to have gotten that out of the shop. 
and I started designing. Well, the design is actually done. My wife wants a Scandinavian piece. It's a round table with a uh, guy. I, I'd shown you pictures yeah, of it. Yeah. Um, it's a, uh, it's a round table with uh, an expandable round table that becomes an oval table with the wings. Well, I guess, I don't know if you'd call it inserts a or leaf. wings leaf. Yeah. But got the veneers in for that. And uh, she, the, the design again, to talk about, you know, what Nathan uh, was talking about in terms of design, it's not my design, you know, it's, it's something that already exists. I mean, I'm just designing how I want the joinery to go together and how I want uh, the piece to sort of expanding the, the leaves to expand. But, uh, but it is very much, I guess you would just call it a copy, a visual copy of something that already exists. Just You're a plagiarist. Yeah. Well, you know, whatever <laughs> maybe why reinvent, why reinvent the wheel man. i mean yeah <laughs> it's, it's the table well, I get that, you get that all the time you know people bring in pictures of, can you make this yeah, yeah sure yeah so i mean it's I, just name of the game it's just yeah. take something that already exists and twist it to make it yours yeah sure yeah yeah so looking forward to starting that got the veneers in they're in my shop just kind of relaxing right now how about you sean what do you got going on man still working on the never-ending bow front cabinet did the sliding dovetails, uh, got the sides and the, the case put together, dry fitted. Mm-hmm. Had to order some veneer for the for the uh, the bow front door. How are you doing the doors? Are you gonna do a, a bent lamination? Yeah, bent lamb. Layered. Yeah, I got some eighth inch Baltic birch, and I got to build a bending form. But the the veneer should be in Saturday. I had to order some uh, some walnut because I didn't have any boards wide enough to resaw unless I wanted to do like three or four pieces, probably four pieces to get the, the width. And I'd rather, mm. you know, get a nice uh, figured straight grain piece of a uh, veneer and do a, a book match or a, what do they call it? A slip mm-hmm. match. Is that what they slip call it? Match. Yeah. Slip we cut match. it. And yeah, I, actually I think this yeah. is going to be a book match. Cause I got 11 sheets coming in this, uh, in this, whatever they call it. I'm not good with words tonight, but Flitch. it's glitch. Yes, yeah. exactly. I got 11 pieces. So hopefully I get a nice book match out of that for the door and the drawer front. And then today I just spent some time making a list of the order of operation to build the rest of the cabinet. So yeah, I've been off this week and not had, but probably an hour in the shop so far. So I'm not mm-hmm. made a whole lot of progress. Have, on. have you, have you done bent doors like that before using a form? Have a, uh, let me think bent doors. No, not bent doors. Okay. So this is a, a first time thing for you. It is a first time thing for me. You know, I'd say there's a 50, 50 shot of me making multiple doors. <laughs> I got, I was, was going to tell you, I've got two videos on YouTube of me doing that. Okay. One was, I did some nightstands mm-hmm. that have a curved front to them. And then my buffet had not only curved door panels, but curved frame panels. Yeah, I mean it's. It, I think it, it's it's straightforward. Just yeah, glue up six or five pieces of eighth inch ply or six pieces and cut the edges so that they're ninety to the frame, and then install hinges. The real the real trick is getting the um, the bending form correct. So How so? The spacing of the ribs because the, it can the the the, the panel can cavitate inside oh, those ribs. Yeah, I'm not I'm not doing the spacing ribs i'm just going to do one solid form with multiple curved pieces beastie nice mm. yep nice. yep only because if i did that i would have to put some hardboard over it and i didn't want to have to recalculate my curves for the cnc to take that in consideration and you know you know if if you're the only thing is well we'll, we'll talk about i'll talk we'll talk about this off microphone okay <laughs> so it's going to be a solid bending form i've got a big old sheet of mdf out there Two full sheets of eighth inch ply, five by five. So I've got plenty of scrap if, to make a few doors if I need to, but I'll get it figured out. Cool. Yeah. cool. So I think that'll do it for the show. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have questions for the show and we need some, send them to us. You can DM us through Instagram at Woodshop Life or go to our contact page over on woodshoplifepodcast.com and send us your questions. We're running out, so send your questions through. 
And we'd also like to thank everyone that left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really does help the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. And you can reach me at simplecove.com and at simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. What about you, Hui, where you can be found? alabamawoodworker.com and at alabamawoodworker on the socials. Guy? Uh, Guyswoodshop.com or just do a search on any of the social media networks for Guy's Woodshop and you will find me. Including Tinder? Ooh. I don't know anything about that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a couple weeks. All right. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.